Hi, I'm Helis Kendrick. And I'm Chris Keane. And this is Series 2 of the Recruit for Spouses podcast. In this episode, we're talking to rugby legend Jordan Murphy, ex-Ireland international and the most decorated rugby player in the Premiership after spending his career with Leicester Tigers. He's also our non-executive director and has already made a huge impact within the Recruit for Spouses team. We'll talk more about that later, but first, let's find out about Geordie's childhood and how he got into rugby. I was born in Dublin, 1978, the youngest of six children. Dad was an Irish Army officer. Mother was run ran the house. You know, you say now housewife, but I think you know, kind of in the industry that you're in, you know what's expected of effectively a single parent family. And the Irish Army is, is quite unique. My dad spent a, a little bit of time with the United Nations away overseas for six year long tours. So it was quite an interesting place for her to be with six kids. I was by far the youngest. So my oldest five siblings, four brothers and a sister, are all sort of within 10 years apart and then there was a gap from about seven and a half eight years to me so I was very much described as a mistake my entire life and told that I wasn't expected but I had a brilliant childhood very very loved by all my siblings mum and dad and great childhood stereotypically sort of Irish I suppose in the countryside Uh, lots of sports lots of outdoor activities running around and out as much as possible really so um I suppose that was where it all started. Sport obviously was huge for me in that my brothers had all played different sports and I suppose I was always trying to follow in their footsteps. And my sister, um, you know, I think the opportunities to play rugby for women back then weren't as good as they are now and they're improving, but my sister would have been a a world-class rugby player, which just didn't really get the opportunity. So again, probably a little bit of inequality in the world that was then, um, well, that is now as well. But yeah, so changed schools when I was about 13 and started playing rugby, which probably wasn't my favourite sport. I really liked an Irish sport called Gaelic football, which is a little bit like Aussie rules for people who don't know. It's kind of a cross between soccer and rugby. Played that to a reasonably high level. And I think when I was about 15, 16, we had a coach arrive from New Zealand who was coaching in our school alongside sort of the local town. He turned around and sort of said, look, I really think there's an opportunity for you to play rugby because, you know, you've got a skill set that a lot of people don't have in rugby, which was catching and kicking. So he came to my house, spoke to my parents and arranged for me to go on a six month school exchange to Auckland Grammar in New Zealand, which is where I really kind of, I suppose, developed an absolute love for the game and came back from New Zealand, just 16, 16 and a half years of age a very changed player, kind of had a real understanding for the game, a real love of the game, and you know started to do quite well with my school team. And in that, I think it's probably well known that it probably wasn't a level playing field late 90s in Ireland. It was kind of very much if your face didn't fit the picture, you didn't get through. And I think that's a consistent thing that I've heard across the world since then, really, is and sometimes, you know, it just seems that it's very difficult to break in. And certainly it was for me at that time. It didn't seem to matter what I did. I, I didn't sort of receive any trials or any offers. So I kind of just plodded along at my school level and we did very well. We were pretty successful. And when I finished school, again, sort of not really any opportunities to play. The game had just gone professional, but there was no academies. There was nothing like that for me. So I was, I was very much a late developer. A year later, I got taken to see Leicester Tigers train in Limerick, just finished my schooling and the coach, same coach who sent me to New Zealand said, we'll go and have a, have a watch what professional teams look like and, and the team, the players that they had in, in their ranks. It was just before the, the Lions tour to South Africa in 1997 and that was a huge thing. It's probably the first really publicised 
rugby tour that I'd watched on television, which was kind of very, very much inspiring. So I went down and the coach that I had went and he spoke to Leicester's director of rugby at the time, head coach Bob Dwyer, who had coached Australia to winning the World Cup in 1991 and was probably you know a coach who I would have known. I didn't know a huge amount about rugby then and, and he arranged for me to go on a three-week trial to Leicester. So a couple of months later, I found myself on a plane landing in Birmingham Airport and making my way to a training ground at Oval Park and I said the rest is history. 24 years later, I sort of, I walked out the same gates. That's amazing. But you skipped through that quite quickly and there were a lot of things at you know, the early stages where you were told you weren't big enough. You had a lot of doors slammed in your face. You know, you said your face didn't fit. Talk around that sort of time. Yeah, I think um, sort of after I came back from New Zealand, I think I was playing a reasonable sort of brand of rugby, reasonable style of rugby to a reasonable level. There's always selections and different teams that go on. I'm from the province of Leinster and I can remember sort of not receiving any trials to get into sort of the Leinster team. So that would have sort of put me down as probably maybe to not get a trial, maybe sort of fifth or sixth best in, in my position. And, and I thought, well, I'm probably not that bad as in we're doing okay. And after not receiving Leinster trials, managed to get some Irish trials a few months later. And again, thought of trialed really well, you know, really good performances. But my father was told on the sideline by some of the coaches that, you know, I was too small, I was too slow which certainly wasn't the case. It's small, definitely slow, not so much. And my standard was was nowhere near the level. And some of the selectors actually were, were openly rude to my father, which is kind of something that I don't think you'd get now, but then I think probably a very different era or different place. And, and they kind of almost made fun of me to my father's face, which obviously irked him. Um, mm. Interestingly, years later, when I did get capped for Ireland, my father made it his business to find the selector that was rude to him on every occasion and, and they follow him around and basically just remind him of the words. So it was kind of one of my dad's hobbies when he was alive. I still see him uh, sort of chatting to me in post-match functions and disappearing to find this guy who, who was openly rude to him and just basically uh, have the conversation again and again. But um, it's a strange one because I think particularly when I speak to parents of children now who are involved in sport and not just rugby, any sport, it can be soul-destroying for children, for young boys, for young girls to not be selected because I think you put so much pressure on yourself. And it wasn't really the case for me and there wasn't that pressure on me, but I do see it and I have seen it in, in sort of my, my coaching life that people put so much pressure on themselves to be selected, to make the team. When they don't, it's, it's soul-destroying, it's heartbreaking. And I guess people develop at their own rates and sometimes there's a little bit of luck involved and sometimes you know there's bad luck involved, you know injuries and, and the like. But I like to think that there's always an avenue through. I love the underdog story, you know, the, the story of footballers who come from the 10th division to play in the premiership. And I guess that's what makes life great. People who keep battling, keep going, keep persevering with it will sometimes achieve what they want to do. And, and I think certainly I was a case of that. You know, I look back now and there were so many times where I could have said, oh, well, that's it. I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm too small. I'm too slow. You know, I'll just accept playing at this level. But it wasn't the case. And I think it was because I genuinely loved the game. I genuinely had a real passion for what I was doing, which meant that I was always going to do it. It didn't matter if I was going to be a professional or if whether I was going to be an amateur or whether I was going to play for my local team. That was what I was going to do because I loved it. And because I loved it, I saw huge growth when I sort of was given the opportunities. 72 caps for Ireland. I mean, you know, the most decorated premiership rugby player. And actually, we've been working with you now for 
well, most of the year. And you are a very down to earth, humble kind of person. How did you keep your feet on the ground and just stay normal and true to yourself? I think some of that comes from being part of a, a big family and the rugby club that I sort of started off in in Nace in Ireland, they are a, a great levellers. They'll say it to you straight as it is and it's almost like a big family in that, you know, you're very much protected when you're in the circle and when you sort of raise your head or you get a little bit too cocky, they're very happy to tell you. Rugby is an amazing sport. I think it's as close to battle as you can get without any bullets being fired. But you really do have to rely on your comrades and your teammates and the guys who are in the squad with you. And, and you know, when I joined Leicester in 1997, I guess it was uh, it was a really unique environment in that they'd lost a big final the year before. And, and they'd always been a huge team in, in sort of English rugby, but had aspirations to do more and to be better and, and to improve. And it was almost kind of a little bit of a, a change in relation to the way that we were going to play and that season, the first season I was at Leicester, they didn't win the Premiership. And so it was a couple of years then without a trophy. So it was it was a really nice time to sort of reset the clock, focus on what had made Leicester good. And it wasn't really talked about, but it, effectively it was culture and, and just driving that culture that, that had made Leicester strong for such a long period of time of having really good people who worked really, really hard for each other and who really sort of were dogged and, and fought things out and were almost reflective of the community that they lived in. Now, saying that, I was never a player who was known as being overly dogged until very late in my career. But, you know, you, you have that armour up front. You have the ability to have some sparkle behind it in rugby. So it's kind of, it's a nice analogy for anything that, that I've experienced. And, and as you say, I was really lucky. I played in some amazing teams with some amazing colleagues and teammates uh, for 16 years as a professional player where, you know, I suppose eight premiership titles played in, in premiership finals every year other than 2003 and 2004 which meant that we, we lost in six finals but again they're great learning opportunities for me and then some some Irish caps then some, you know I think because I was playing in a really strong team at Leicester and we'd won the European Cup and back to back in, in 2001 and 2002 I was picked for Ireland just a little bit before that and, and then was very lucky to have a long career in Ireland but again <clears throat> I suppose the contrast culturally was very noticeable to me when Ireland weren't good or when, when Ireland were, were struggling and, and really sort of not performing. It was definitely sort of on the back of the way the team gelled and the way the team mixed. Um, and certainly when Ireland won their first Grand Slam in 62 years in 2009 was a real case of getting that right. And, and it's very, very fine margins, a couple, two, three percent. But, you know, exposed me for 16 or 17 years as a player to being part of you know high performing teams where the culture was spot on when the culture wasn't right or when there was you know one or two percent off that's when we didn't win yeah you talked earlier about having a good culture versus a bad culture talk around how you've used that into the business world and what you're doing now that transition that you've experienced i think it's hugely important and the culture is how your organization operates, you know, what behaviors are accepted when no, when no one's really looking at it and, you know, what sort of people you have in your environment. And people are, are hugely important. You know, I figured when I sort of came out of the sporting world, you know, what really interests me. And the thing is, you know, helping people get better, something that we kind of almost did on a daily basis in the sporting world. You know, the best players, the best people that I worked with were people who were really ambitious, really wanted to get better, really wanted to improve, really wanted to learn never arrogant always humble and to the extent that you know if anyone said anything there would always be one or two percent in, in something that you know they could take away and, and learn from and, and you know improve so i find culture fascinating you know the different types of cultures and the different types of organization and again having the time to reflect on what made leicester successful and what made ireland successful you know again was pretty helpful in that regards 
when I finished playing in 2013, I went into the coaching world and I really saw a culture erode to the level that was heartbreaking for me in sort of 2016, 2017, 18. I just saw you know, a really broken place, broken environment. And I found myself taking over as, as head coach of, of Leicester in 2018, 19 season, I think a couple of weeks into the season. And you know, we, we had a team that weren't fit enough didn't have a buy-in to win and, and we were in a relegation battle for the first time in uh, forever, 120, 30 years. And it was just purely because I think the culture wasn't strong enough. It had eroded and that was a really tough time. But again, it, it helped me in retrospect, look back on it, you know, what made it better, you know, and again, it was the people putting in a lot of hard work, you know, passionate about what they wanted to do. And I look back at some of the players who sort of kept the team up in that season and, you know, they just went above and beyond you know, playing injured, playing hurt, really great people, you know, desperate to survive and to keep the club up, which was a huge learning experience for me. But culture, it's, you know, you could talk about it all day, but I'm sure people will stop listening. I think some of it, it has to align to your personal values and how that fits to your organizational values. Sitting back and kind of having a think on, you know, what values that you as an individual have will help you kind of figure out how that can work with the company structure. Now you're in the business world and you're now working with us, which is great. And we're very lucky to have you on the team. You know, you've taken what you've learned from the rugby world and sporting world and transition, and you're taking that into the world of business. Now, it's quite a different beast, isn't it, really? And you've obviously been working with us for about a year now, and we're thoroughly enjoying it. It's been a challenge for you and the whole team but talk us around the kind of culture piece and how do you transfer what you've learned from the sporting world into the business world? Give us some examples of things. I've talked about being passionate a couple of times already, and I think that's vitally important. I think you need to love or really enjoy what you want to do. You know, it can't seem like a chore if people don't enjoy what they do then it makes it very difficult for them to give that extra little bit, to give everything. And I think, you know, in regards to everything that I see and everything that I really enjoy about sort of working with RFS is that's a really passionate group of people who really care about making a change. And there's some huge opportunities to obviously change the way things are done. And obviously there's a little bit of getting better in that regards as well and in that improving processes, improving the way that people are treated. For me, as I said, you know, people are, are what it's all about. And getting the right people on board is, is hugely important who are passionate and driven to do that. Obviously, you need to have a, a skill set. And again, that's something that I think is really important. You know, a really high skill set makes all of that easier and makes it a little bit better to, to flow. But individuals who are passionate, who are willing to you know, go that extra mile and who will work really hard for each other and, and gel, I, th- I think is what makes a great team. And, and that's certainly why I've enjoyed the last year with RFS in that it's a great crew doing a, a, the right thing for the right reasons. And there's that saying, isn't there, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I remember hearing it thinking, didn't really get it, but I, I really get it now about the whole culture. And I used to walk into companies, you see a ping pong table or bean bags, and but that's not really doing culture is it and it's what you live and what you breathe and only until you experience a really good culture and you work towards that on a daily basis is something that you see the benefits in the whole business don't you what drives good culture I love the term psychological safety I came across it years ago and I had no idea what it was and I sort of had to research it and look into it I think the ability for all members of a team to feel like they have a voice to be able to contribute and share 
their thoughts and how they feel is, is hugely important. And again, I need to be careful how I say this, but I guess I think about the janitor when JFK was walking through NASA and he said, you know, what do you do here? And he said, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. That for me is, you know, that's an amazing culture. That's passionate, really proud of what they do. It wasn't of I'm a janitor or, or I'm just anything. You know, being just something really annoys me as in everyone is part of the team. Everyone is a vital cog mm-hmm. in, in part of the team's success. So I think that's people need to be really proud of what they do and the ability to have an opinion and to say it across the board to me, to you, to have the conversations, to know that people will listen and take it on board and think, okay, how can we improve? How can we, we be better? That psychological safety is massive. Now, it's not always going to be right because people will have opinions and it's very easy to have an opinion if it's not your neck on the line. But the ability to say it and actually be listened to is vital. And then there's disagree and commit. You know, sometimes people won't agree with the route, but you need to commit to the path because mm-hmm. it's something that I absolutely love in regards to, you know, okay, I might not agree with what you're going to say here or what way we're moving forward, but you know, once you move, it's very much that family feel of you're supported regardless and we're on the same page and we're on the same team and we're doing this for the benefit of the team, but, you know, you you can have your say. So I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've kind of come across. And how would you say values underpin all of that culture? Again, I went away and I looked at my own personal values and and how they underpin cultures. And And I think values are, you know, how you show up on a daily basis and what people can expect of you. And sometimes people always say, you know, do your values have to perfectly line up with the companies? And I don't necessarily think that's true. I just think you have to have an appreciation of who you are as an individual. And for me, you know, my values are very much, you know, family, huge, important, you know, drives me and you'll hear me talk about that. Fairness is something that I think certainly gets me in trouble on occasion and integrity and integrity is a strange word, but I guess that's, you know, just doing the right thing or doing what you say you're going to do. And for me, that helps me line up with RFS in that it's not too far away. It's pretty similar, but I know exactly what is important to me. Mm-hmm. And I know that is how, you know, I'm going to act on a daily basis. If I can say that I'm going to help or I'm going to do something, then, you know, it irks me if I can't do that. And there's lots of different values people can have and that's okay. It's okay to be different and, and that's fine. And that sometimes makes, you know, great teams for people to have those different drivers. As long as you're part of the team, you know, I've worked with every different character in the sporting world and now I'm kind of cutting my teeth in the business world it's really interesting for me but again the whole people piece is what really interests me and do you kind of sometimes see the similarities within the business world a lot of the sort of psychological safety do those situations seem familiar yeah very much so the first time you go into anything and I talked about this there's a massive imposter piece in that I see it a lot in sports people I see a lot in, in people from the military and I'm very lucky to have as I said my father was in, in the Irish army I'm very lucky to have some friends in the British army and people who have left the British army and the same as in professional sport when you leave something that you've is your identity for a long period of time there's a real case of wow you know grieving loss you know it's so much different so to go into a new world there's always going to be a case of imposter syndrome there was always a case of sort of negative talk and sort of the gremlins on your shoulder I used to call them when you played and everyone has them but I suppose when people start talking about them they go okay yeah so there's always the voice that's going to tell you that you're not good enough or that you know you're not getting it right and whatever And, and it's just about kind of managing that voice and kind of having triggers in your own head that sort of get you on that track so I guess when you come out of the sporting world and you come into a new world of business it's always that oh god well what have I got to offer and you know I don't know but there's nothing that I've seen in the business world that I haven't seen before in the sporting world 
particularly with people you get every type of people you get people with huge egos who are the star players who you know generally gravitate towards sales who are these people who need managing who need sort of to keep in check and i guess that's probably one of the biggest questions i get asked by sort of sales teams is you know how much of this can you accept and then that's obviously more about the time that you've got to spend as a, as a leader but you get great people you get you know guys who are really detailed who just need to be told really bluntly and really directly you get people who are the completely opposite side and you know you need to kind of figure out the triggers that work for them so there's nothing in the business world that i've seen that i haven't seen in the sporting world in regards to people in regards to how teams function and how teams kind of gel together so from that point of view it's been a lot of fun and imposter syndrome because everybody talks about this term what to you is imposter syndrome? How would you advise somebody overcomes that? I think imposter syndrome for me is just that voice in your head, that voice that's there, that's always going to be there until you can get hold of it. Just going, how qualified are you to be here? How can I possibly help somebody who you know is more experienced in this world or that world or you know has this much experience? And again, it's not about that. It's again appreciation of your own individual value and. Again, you know, how you can help people might be just having a conversation or might be leading them towards something that they already know. It's just sometimes, you know, we're all brilliant. We've all got a, a lot of the answers. Some of us are great at giving advice and terrible at taking it. And sometimes it's nice just to have a different person there. So, so for me, imposter syndrome is just that voice just saying, you know, you're not good enough. And managing that is hugely important. As a player, I was very lucky to work with sports psychologists and, you know, most top teams now will have access to sports psychologists and again it's it's sports psychology but similar in that people will have vocal triggers and physical triggers to kind of get themselves back on track back into you know their proper zone of performance you know peak performance zone whatever you like to call it it's been called numerous different things but when you lose your head and you get to that red brain you know how do you get yourself back to you know really thinking clearly and I think Clive Woodward called it you know thinking clearly under pressure, thinking correctly under pressure. There's lots of different ways of looking at it and people can analyze things and pick it apart. But effectively, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's just getting yourself into the zone that you're performing at your best. And it's just keeping all those sort of doubts and negative thoughts right at the back of the brain. Yeah. And we're currently up in Derbyshire doing strategy days and all sorts of great stuff. But one thing that I noticed yesterday was one of the team said, Oh, I'm just payroll. I just do payroll. And you were straight away on the individuals that don't feel like they're anything really part of the business, but everybody is part of the team. And you're bringing us together. You know, you talk about a hot flush and and those sort of things. I think one of the big things that I actually stole from the military was really a nice time to debrief was straight away after the effect. Now, it doesn't need to be sort of super detailed, but after an event, I think it's important that the hot flush for me was very much part of the review process of just getting a real gut feel from some people involved in in a training session in a game and the coaches as to how things went and what was the immediate thought process. And and I think sometimes when you step back and sort of think about things and analyze things a little bit on, on a deeper level, 24 hours, 36 hours later, you know, different things will appear, but it's important just to have that. And, and I think that review process 
having a really positive mindset and positive frame on that is helpful because we were very lucky to have Emma Wiggs in last night, who's, you know, one of the most decorated people that I've ever come across, you know, two-time Paralympic gold medal, 10 world championships, eight European goals. She's ridiculously talented. And, you know, she talked about really sort of writing down what a perfect day looks like for you. And, and I think that the review process is, it's very easy to be negative. It's very easy to be hard on yourself. And I think as sort of European, I want to say British people, British and Irish people, we always focus on the negative. We always think, oh, I could have done that better. I could have done that better. So to have a really positive frame on a hot flush is important. It might be an eight out of a 10 day where you think, actually, if I had been told this morning that I was going to have an eight out of 10 day, I would have taken that. But you're always striving. People are always striving to make it a nine out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 day. In regards to the flush, I think debriefing anything is important and having conversations in around that is, is hugely important the sporting world it's natural every day every training session every sort of opportunity that someone has to get better there's a debrief and there's a conversation about you know what went well what could have gone better mm-hmm. and then sort of sometimes when we talk about that in the business world we say well, we never really do that we always beat yeah. ourselves up we only ever yeah. review when things have gone badly and that's I guess one of the things that I'm amused about sort of feedback loops is that generally when employees or staff or people get told oh you have a feedback session people always go oh no I've got to go to see the boss for some feedback but probably the best time to get feedback is when it's really positive and really encourage those behaviors and drive the fact that you know things can be done so much better and and really say that was amazing and people are always constrained by time again we haven't got the time we haven't got the time but if you get really effective at it, it doesn't need to be a long period of hourly meetings. It can be short, sharp, concise feedback sessions where people actually sort of think, okay, well, there are areas where I can prove, sure, but there's things that I'm doing really well that I want to really focus on those strengths yeah. and keep doing them. And one thing you've done for us as a business is that our meetings are shorter. We have actions after, but we do that what went well and even better if, you know, what went well and that hot flush of how did that meeting go? So every meeting we have, every Zoom call or Google Meet we have, whether it's with each other or whether it's with a customer or a spouse, we always are self-reflective and we have to keep checking in with ourselves. That's a regular, what went well? How did it go? When the team really trusts each other, it makes it a lot easier. And days like, you know, these couple of days are hugely important. You know, we generally work remotely. And when we have new team members, you know, it takes time to get to know each other and and have those conversations. Now, what I really see in the RFS team is is a real willingness to grow and get better and to have the conversations now. So a meeting that might have taken an hour because people were tiptoeing around how to say something and you know how to approach something. Now, there's so much sharper that you can say, oh, I think we should do this. People will give their opinions and the team has been really receptive to going, oh, actually, yeah, let's buy into that. So we haven't had to have the niceties. I think people are really assuming a positive intent with everything that we say. So it's not, oh, somebody said everything is, has got a positive frame to it and people are responding really well to it. Just being able to have those really open and honest conversations and, and the team seems to trust each other. We don't want to get too far ahead of each other, but the team seems to be in a really trusting place where we're getting on quite well. I certainly saw that last night sitting around the table and you know, we had some keynote speakers and heard the laughter as you know, we were having dinner and sort of just enjoying each other's company really helps sort of gel the team and I think they're really positive things. You are a family man and uh, you have a wonderful wife and a supportive wife and three lovely children but Annika your wife also had an incredible career. She was a professional equestrian rider and did very well and give us a little bit of background around the team behind sort of Team Murphy. Well, firstly, it's a, uh, I'm very, very lucky, as you say, and my wife, she's an amazing person. 
She did a great job with the kids. And as you said, you know, she actually qualified as an amateur to go to some of the professional events. Unbelievable, you know, I think did it from a very different background to some of the backgrounds that you would see. You know, she kind of did it the really, really tough way on borrowed horses and putting a lot of her own time and money into sort of training the horses and, and getting her to a level that, you know, she could compete with professionals. She's an unbelievable rider and she would always say, you know, that she has regrets. Uh, she probably regrets maybe not pursuing that to a certain level. But we're in a situation now, we've got three young kids. The youngest is, is a year and a half. We've got a seven-year-old Rex. We've got Oscar, who's four, and, and Ottilie, who's, who's a year and a half. And it's something that I hope that Annika goes back to. You know, I think the dynamic of Team Murphy over the last few years has certainly been maybe her in the backseat, but I, I actually totally disagree when people say that. Um, you know, I hear the term a lot, you know, behind every good man is an even better woman but I think it's beside and probably in front of on a lot of occasions because she drives most of the good things that happen in our life certainly with regards to the kids and, and she's incredibly focused incredibly disciplined and really keeps me in check we've got a got a great relationship we fall out on occasions as all couples do and we disagree and we fight but again we have really great conversations and when we're talking to each other and, and having the uh, open and honest discussions sometimes too honest from her behalf because she doesn't pull any punches but I'm very, very lucky. You know, I really hope my opportunity to kind of support her will come in the next few years. And Annika has a background in logistics. Yeah, she came out of school quite early and worked for her father's business, which was a logistics company. So she loves data. She loves facts and figures, accounts and spreadsheets, which is the complete antithesis of me. <laughs> I'm not very good with the detail, but she loves detail. She loves putting plans together. She loves sort of planning to the nth degree. So from that point of view, we're a really great mix. She tells me where I'm doing and where I'm going. And yeah, she, she's um, very entrepreneurial and she's got a couple of businesses on the go and sort of started all of those whilst she was had two young children and she was pregnant with a third when she started her last business. She's a real driving force between Team Murphy's. She's achieved a huge amount. It's not uncommon for her when I'm away to you know have the kids all day, get the kids to bed and then start working at half seven, eight o'clock and work until half nine, ten o'clock at night maybe later if it needs to be and you know sort of before the kids are up in the morning if she can get an hour in she'll get an hour in there so I really see sort of similarities with some of the the spouses that we've met who who kind of just use whatever windows they have to get work done and that's on top of having probably the most important job which I've experienced on a few occasions of, of raising three children which is the toughest job in the world. And you were telling all of us last night about how you had to look after the three. I mean, obviously, you share the childcare equally between you, which is great. But you were also telling us about how you thought you would absolutely, completely got it sorted. You had the dishwasher loaded. You had everything sorted. You thought the house is great. She'd been unwell for 24 hours with a bug. She came downstairs. And what did she say to you? She took one look at it and sort of said, well, place is a bit of a tip, isn't it? Um <laughs> Which was soul-destroying for me, and my head nearly popped, but I thought, you know, I'm actually going to take this, I'm going to have a look at it, and as it turned out, it wasn't in 10 out of 10 shape, it was solidly a 6, but uh, I was reasonably happy with the day I'd had, but the small windows, and I don't think it's equal in relation to childcare, much to my embarrassment, but I'm amazed when I sort of do weekends or even days with the kids how anything gets done, because my personality, uh, my sort of the way I work is uh, I physically do not know how she achieves what she achieves on a daily basis. It's... But you both support each other brilliantly. And oh, if she yeah. was to say, I want to go back and do my job full time, you would completely 100%. support that. No, no, 100%. We would figure out anything. And the older that the youngest gets, the more time that Annika's getting back into working. And I'll have the kids 
if she needs to go and do anything I'll, I just don't want to be caught on a podcast saying that it's equal the amount of work we do because <laughs> to be quite honest I know it's not but I'm incredibly supportive of her as she has been for me from you know my entire career and I think you know the things that she's achieving the things that she's doing makes me incredibly proud and I just want her to be really happy with what she does and, and I'll support that as best I can for as long as I can. They always say the best male leaders have feminine energy and the best female leaders have slight masculine energy. So it's a balance. And I think at home, if you've got that balance right and it's opening up those conversations and we could talk for hours around this, but it's being fair, isn't it? It's going back to your values about fairness. And I think it's living to your values and... Massively so for me, yeah. What is fair? And again, you know, you say fair is 50-50 relationship in regards to everything and... I think in any relationship, in any sort of partnership in life, there's always going to be sort of checks and balances. Somebody's mm. always going to excel in, in certain areas and someone's always going to, you know, struggle in certain areas. That's what makes great teams. You know, you just pick up the slack, you know, when that trust is there and when teams are there, you know, it's just about the team in the long run. And I, and I think, you know, Team Murphy, as you said, is in a good place. I'm not sure who the, the leader is, to be quite honest, but I think we both take turns in, in that role and, and it works. So I guess it's case in point of what it looks like when it's operating well. Great. Geordie, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Massive thank you to Geordie for coming on our podcast this month. Don't forget, you can catch up on all of our previous episodes from this series and series one. All you have to do is search for the Recruit for Spouses podcast wherever you normally listen to podcasts.